fears, I believe, are uh, that water will run out, that water or that will get to be really expensive. But then I think that they also have fear of flood. I mean, we go back and forth from drought to flood. So extremes of weather, I think, are, are what's in store for us. And, and I think one of the keys is to be resilient to whatever comes along. The weather's going to be increasingly unpredictable, that we have to be able to survive and cope and, and store water and have more groundwater and conserve more and save rainwater, uh, learning how to do with less. And the hope, I, I think the hope is that some people, some people with imagination will be able to come up with some new ideas about how to, how to live uh, uh, with a very scarce and finite resource. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. On the second season, we bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people who work with food in incredible ways. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. I'm here today with Jonah Raskin, and, and Jonah is a writer, and a poet, and a journalist with a love for food and the people who make it. Jonah is the author of 14 books on subjects ranging from women in rock and roll, marijuana culture and politics, Jack London, Allen Ginsberg, and a personal exploration of food and farming culture of Sonoma County called Field Days. One thread that connects these works is this loving and exuberant sense of place. His countless articles in the local press in Sonoma County, where we both live, very often profile eccentric characters, and quite often those eccentric characters are immersed in lifetime projects of growing and making food. Joyner was raised on Long Island. He got a PhD in England, and he adopted Sonoma County in the late 1970s, where he taught literature and journalism at Sonoma State University. I met Jonah at a community meeting on oysters in West Marin, and um, some of my favorite writing of it explores the community's bitter controversy over the closing of the Drake's Bay Oyster Company. He's currently working on a book about the drought in California. So, Jonah, welcome to our podcast, The Delicious Revolution. Great. Glad to be a part of it. Glad to be here and continue our conversation. So I want to start talking about oysters. I'm a, cause that's how we met. Um, I'm an oyster lover. I, mm -hmm. I think you, I, I think you love oysters too. And, um, during that brief time that Chelsea and I got to live out in Inverness, which you mm -hmm. had a residency at the Lucid Art Foundation. Um, at that time, the community was totally embroiled in this controversy over the closing of the Drake's Bay oyster farm yes. that had operated for more than 50 years while, and during that time, Point Reyes became a national park. You did a lot of reporting on this. Um, what caught your interest about those oysters? Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to th throw myself back to the beginning. Um, um, I suppose the fact that there was this controversy about it and people were getting all heated up about it and it was in the courts and um, there were people on sides and people didn't want to talk to one another. And uh, I, I think that I was motivated to find out what was really going on there. And uh, uh, I... I by the time that I got interested in the oyster story, I had been writing about farming and about food. So it did seem like 
a, a natural extension of the kind of uh, research and writing that I that I have been doing for years. And I hadn't I hadn't written about uh, what I think they call mariculture. I don't think I even knew the word mariculture, and so it was a way to like to jump from. Uh, uh, farming on on land to to farming in uh, in in waters and salty waters and to to look at the oysters as a as as a crop and um so uh I don't really remember wh- what I did first though I do I do know that I spent a lot of time uh out at uh in Drake's Estero where the Drake's Bay oyster farm was and talking to the people and and going out into the estero uh with the uh oyster men including uh Jorge Mata uh who is like I guess the foreman and going out in, in different seasons and in winter and spring and summer and getting a feel for that place and um and learning, talking to them, and hearing their stories, and um, and I guess following the oysters uh, from from their being harvested out in the waters, and then brought in, and then sorted, and shucked, and oysters put in jars, and um, and then going to restaurants and talking to chefs and people who are cooking with oysters. Um, uh, eating some oyster pizzas at the <laughs> Osteria Stellina, uh, um, and uh, going going to meetings and just talking to lots of people in in the community about what was going on. I I um, do feel um, a sense of loss. I'm sorry that the oyster farm is not there. I wish that the federal government the department of the interior could have figured out well how can we possibly have an oyster farm in a wilderness area i don't think that they're they're innately um uh you know not they can't cohabit or or coexist um um uh, there's there's no such thing as pure wilderness. There's no pristine uh, wilderness. Um, uh, landscapes that are, are socially constructed. Um, I do know that there's people who like to like remove any trace of uh, of human habitation or where humans have worked or, or lived and. But I guess that's not my perspective, not my point of view. I mean, people have been on the earth and have been in places that are called wilderness for thousands of years, and we've we've altered the landscape. And um, there were Drake's Bay Oyster Farm was part of the culture and lifestyle for a lot of people who went out there. Yeah, I think we both easily came down on the same side of that. But there's, there was, you talked to a lot of people who were, who were adamantly against that, letting that farm continue out there. Um, and it seemed to me, and I think this is one of the things that you point out that like that specific controversy got right at the heart of what we mean when we talk about nature and especially out there in West Marin where there is, there's a lot of nature. Yes. Uh, uh, there, yes, there is indeed. You, you do feel, or I feel, many people feel like your, their backs are to the ocean. Uh, you, you can't go any further on land. And, uh, I've heard people say who live there that it's, uh, the geography does like shape and influence a lot the way people look and at the world and feel about the world. Um, it's very rugged. It can be, it can be really windy and, and cold. And if you go out to where the lighthouse is, you, you feel like you take a wrong step and you're in, in the yeah. ocean. Okay. Um, the last time that I was out at Drake's Estero, it was a few months ago. It was, it was beautiful. It was sunny. There was no trace or almost no trace of, of uh people who'd lived there and worked at Drake's Bay Oyster Farm the 
all the housing was gone, all the 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 oyster shack was gone. Uh, there was no boats. Um, it was it was definitely beautiful, and there was also there was nobody there, <laughs> no one at all there, right. which was also strange. I mean, to because every time I'd gone out there before, there were people there who were working. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of trained in ecology, and it's it's been a shift in that field to think about nature as something as something that's that's real, but it's not the same as something where we're not that we're living in an age that some some people are calling the Anthropocene, where there's a yeah. where no part of the world is untouched, and we have to relearn what it means to do conservation in a world that's constantly changing and we have to relearn what it means to interact with nature when we can't just say nature is this thing that humans aren't well nature yes it's, <laughs> it's a big word a lot of people capital capital n and in, in in nature um i do remember being aware of the word and and the concept from a very early age i know that my father would always say and, and my father was took me and my brothers out into <laughs> what we called the natural world of like hiking and exploring and and i think that's where uh, a lot of my uh love of nature comes from i can remember my father saying that uh human beings were a part of nature I know there are people who who are adamantly against that idea. I've heard people like, you know, argue argue and say, you know, we're we're outside nature. We're we're in antagonistic relationship to it. Uh, uh, but we're also Homo sapiens. We're an animal species, and uh, we've uh, uh, we've we've fundamentally altered the the, the natural environment and. In, in everything we've done from and and from the beginning, um, in my own uh, my most recent book is called "A Terrible Beauty: The Wilderness of American Literature," and it's about uh, the way that that uh, Europeans and then U.S. Uh, writers, poets, novelists have described, written about the stories they've told about the wilderness. And I know that that. Um, the word nature, which has been around for a long time, got a big boost around the time of the American Revolution when people like Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, start talking about uh, natural rights, rights that were inherent in being human, inalienable rights, mm -hmm. uh, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um and I think that a lot what he and others meant was that these were their rights that didn't derive from society or from the class society of, of, of Europe and that were could be taken away by kings and aristocrats and, and royalty. Mm -hmm. um, now, Jefferson and others didn't, they talked about natural rights, but they didn't talk also about the rights of nature, mm -hmm. which people have, I think that's a fairly new development that's come along that um, uh, that's kind of related to ideas like thinking like a watershed and thinking like a mountain and uh, and now with this growing awareness of climate change and uh, uh, I think people are increasingly aware of the necessity to to see the world from the perspective of, of nature itself. Yeah. It's, um, it seems like thinking about, to me, like thinking about food in a, in systemically, the way that I think has been growing uh, an area of thought that's been growing all over the place, um, makes us rethink what we mean by nature. It makes us kind of redefine that. And, uh, yeah. So, but, what did some of the people tell you who were who really wanted this oyster farm closed out in West Marin? Uh, I would say one of the strongest arguments for those who didn't like the oyster farm said, "Well, uh, the Lunnies, uh, Kevin and Nancy, signed a contract, and the, and the lease was up, and they knew this, and 
it was time to go and they should have just gone instead of trying to drag it out and extend it. I, I think for a lot of people, it just came down to the law. And, uh, and then also people complained that the oyster farm was, uh, polluting the waters and there was a lot of junk that was there and, uh, and that it was destroying the, the sort of destroying the natural beauty. I think those were like the two strongest arguments against it. I think, I think in listening to a few people out when I was out there, there is this, it was, it was mostly an argument over like whether or not they should stay there, but there were these funny undercurrents or I heard some narratives that felt racist about uh-huh. so many Mexican workers being out there. And there was, seemed like there was often a, an idea of the purity of that place that mm-hmm. felt like it bordered on, um, on something really ugly under the surface. Uh, that is possible. I think, though, though, to a large extent, the, the, the Mexicans who worked there w- were sort of invisible. Uh, I mean, I know that I wrote about them and, and, uh, I often would see pictures of the Mexican worker when there was a story, uh, like in the Press Democrat, the local newspaper around here, there were pictures of, of them, but there, there wasn't, very much reporting about them themselves. I don't know that any any reporter actually went and talked to the Mexicans. So uh, I think that they're that they were they were at the heart of the of what was happening there because they were the ones who were doing the work. But in the stories that were written about the whole controversy. Uh, I think that they are, for the most part, ignored and and not included. Huh. Yeah. yeah, it it is uh, it is a largely uh, sort of white area, sort of right. West Marin, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways it's like privileged. And, right. Um. Uh, and I have <laughs> yes, I've had heard some friends of mine say that the whole argument was like an argument between people who are largely well off and prosperous about what what they're going to what was going to happen in their backyard right Um, you've written a lot about people who think a lot about nature um jack london comes to mind yeah so what was his contribution to this idea of nature and this idea of uh nature and the place that we live well, uh, Jack London's contribution, I would say, uh, was a lot in his, uh, in, in the story or the novel. It's called, uh, The Call of the Wild, mm-hmm. which was published in 1902. And I think that, um, before then, to a very large extent, people thought, when they thought about the wild in the wilderness, they thought about something that was external. It was out there. And Jack London wrote the story in which, uh, the, the main character is a dog. He's, uh, his name is Buck. And I think by writing about this dog that London was able to express his, a lot of his ideas about like human beings. I mean, Duck, Buck is a very anthropomorphic dog. He has all yeah. kinds of human feelings and, uh-huh. and he's a thinking, uh-huh. really very thinking dog. So the wild is inside Buck. And, um, the wild that's inside him, um, emerges when he's kidnapped from California and he's taken away to, uh, to the Yukon. So I think that London believed, and he, I think he also observed this, that there was what he might have called sort of reversions and people kind of, and animals and beasts sort of went back, uh, to their sort of original, whatever their original nature was. I, I, I believe that he used the word atavism to describe it, to describe it. Um, so there was that, uh, the call of the wild and uh, has had a tremendous impact on people's uh, thinking, I think, all around the world. Best-selling book made into movies more than half a dozen times and published in more than a hundred different languages. Um, um, 
So London also wrote about uh, this part of the world, our part of the world. One of his best novels is called The Valley of the Moon, which mm -hmm. is another name for Sonoma Valley. And uh, while the book is not mostly, it's not set in, in Valley of the Moon, it's um, the last section of the book takes place there. And it's a kind of... Um, him to the sort of natural beauty of, of the Valley of the Moon. <clears throat> Jack London got there in 1905 and bought over 100 acres, and he was part of what they called the Back to the Land movement. It had that name mm -hmm. uh, in the start of the 20th century, and it's had a lot of different iterations in, in California history. It does seem like people are always going back to the land in California and partially because there's, there's land to go back to. There's so much land here. Um, and it's a, it's a dream of, of a lot of people to go back to the land. And that what stands in the way now is the price of land that's like prohibitive for so many people. Uh, because the land is so valuable for grapes. Um, um, so that is, I think, one of the big challenges here. Uh, people in government, public life, talk about uh, uh, the fact that farming is part of the identity of Sonoma County. Um, so I think people we need as a as a uh, as a society here to to not just give lip service to that idea, but to figure out ways in order to. Provide farmland for people who want to who want to farm and want to feed people. So your book um, Field Days, you gave me a copy when when I met you, and um, and I read it the first couple weeks that I moved to San Sonoma County. I loved it. It was like a the perfect thing to to uh -huh, fall okay. in love with this place. Great. Um, it seems like that was your experiment in both like chronicling some people who are involved in a back to the land mm -hmm. movement, but also participating in it yes. in some way. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that book and that experience? Well, um, I, as a reporter journalist, I've never accepted the dichotomy between the observer and the participant. And I've like participated in a lot of stories that I've written. And I think it's, you know, added to the, to the, to the stories that, I, that I've written. Um, uh, my first idea was to do a book of photographs and to do a book of photographs about a farm, which is down the road for me. Uh, it's called Valley End. I would drive past it a couple of times a day and I would just look at it, the fields and the landscape. And it, it's, um, it's at the, literally at the end of the valley and, and there was a, they had a farm stand there and I used to stop and, 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 and talk to the guy who was selling. So I talked to my friend, uh, Paige Green, who's a photographer and about taking pictures. And she said, yes, definitely. Uh, so we met on Petaluma Hill Road, uh, right on the shoulder of the road. And I asked her to start taking photographs. And she said, well, I can't do that. I mean, we have to go and get permission of the, uh, of the farmer <laughs> before that. So I didn't really like that idea. I just wanted to just take the pictures. Right? But I, I, um, I could see her point of view. So we left our cars there and we walked down this sort of long driveway to the farmhouse in the distance. And right then and there, I felt myself like I was no longer outside the landscape that I'd been looking at. But now I was inside the landscape, and I was a part of it. And and then when uh, we were let into the house and 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 um, uh, met Sharon Grassi, who was a farmer, and heard her stories, I realized that the book had to be more than just photographs. It also had to be the stories of of the farmers themselves. Yeah. So, and I think it was probably significant that at the very, at the very beginning, the start of this uh, odyssey ac across this landscape that I did talk to a, a woman farmer and she, uh, she had the help of her son Clint, but she didn't have a husband. And, and that I also met the, the Mexican crew. Um, uh, I don't know the first week that I was there and talked to them and, and um, 
if I had stereotypes of Mexican field workers, I was soon, uh, I soon lost them. I mean, uh, I remember that they were concerned about uh, food and health, and they didn't want to work in places where there are chemical sprays, and uh, they would talk about their own food issues and diabetes and having to eat right. And <laughs> so uh, they, they were savvy and, and, and they were very eloquent in, in, in the things that they talked about. Uh, yeah. And you, you spent a year going there, is that right, in, um, participating in that farm? I was there, and then I was also... And I spent a lot of time at Oak Hill Farm. Right. I mean, Oak Hill was the was the main farm where where I spent a lot of time. I I had been to a number of farms, and then a friend of mine said, "Well, if you're writing about farms, you have to go to Oak Hill." And I had never heard of Oak Hill, which is in in Glen Ellen. So I went there. I met the woman who owns the farm, uh, Ann Teller. She drove me around in her pickup truck, and I saw the farm. Um, the, all the different things that are going on there, the growing flowers, uh, berries, uh, fruit trees, row crops. Uh, it had a, it had the red barn store where they sold produce and, and there was like over 20 people who were living in different houses there. She was living there. And I remember saying to her, well, if I'm going to write about Oak Hill, uh, I'm going to need to actually work here. And it's the only way I can see myself to telling the story. And she said, well, okay, but talk to the farmer, talk to Paul Wirtz and see what you can arrange. So I found Paul and uh, I, I said, I want to work here. And he looked at me very dubiously. <laughs> Why does this guy want to work? This is hard work. Why does he want to work on a farm for <laughs> So he said, "Okay, yeah, if you want to, if you want to work, show up uh, tomorrow morning at six thirty. So I didn't even have time really to <laughs> like go back and forth in my head. It was yeah. like uh, uh, it was right there upon me. So I was living here in this old farmhouse. I set my alarm for five thirty. I got dressed and drove over uh, Grange Road to Crane Canyon to." Um, Bennett Valley and, uh, and, and then over to 12 and, and I worked, uh, that very first day with the crew of all, of all Mexicans and, and, um, and then I, I sort of continued to do that, uh, all through the different seasons of that year. How did that first day feel? Well, it was really exhausting. Um, um, by the end of the day, I could barely like stand up straight. I mean, I was a lot of bending down and, uh, getting close to the ground and lifting things. Um, it was, uh, it was on a very steep learning curve. Um, it was kind of looking in hindsight, it feels kind of funny, um, because, um, Paul Words told me just to, to meet the crew in front of the barn and then to go with them. And um, at that time, my Spanish was rudimentary. It did get better, and their English was they did it, it was rudimentary. Uh, and at one point, they just got in the pickup truck and started to drive off, and nobody had said, "We'll get in the <laughs> truck, or we're going now." And so I kind of ran uphill and jumped in the back of the truck, and then and then went up there with them. And then they got out of the truck, um, and they started harvesting squash and zucchini, and and nobody again, nobody said anything to me. And then I said, "Yo uh, quiero un." Uh, uh, you know, a knife. They, they had these uh, large knives that they were using. So I started harvesting, and then everybody kind of got into the act. And, and if I would harvest something that was too small, they would say, "No, no, no, no." Or, or sometimes, sometimes something would be too large. You know. So yes, everybody was like telling me how to do things, and and um um. I imagine that they are dubious of me, like at the beginning, why I was there and, and uh, why did I want to do this. But they got to accept me, invite me into the tribe, and to be part of their world. And to they would 
their wives or girlfriends would bring food uh, with them uh, to eat, like at a break at nine o'clock or so, and they would share always share the food, and uh, I would hear their stories, um, um, and um, I mean there was clowning around and <laughs> a lot of playfulness. Um, uh, thing, there were things that surprised me. I was on the, went with the flower crew, different than the vegetable crew, and harvesting all kinds of vegetables, including these sunflowers that were like eight or ten feet tall. It was like being this forest of, of sunflowers. And, and, uh, um, I was also like kind of, I would say nervous about how to like harvest the flowers the right way. And so I was asking, uh, Jesus, you know, well, do I, do I count the number of flowers or is it a matter of hand eye coordination? Or he said, well, it's just the feel. You get to know the feel of, of, of you don't count them and what, what they feel like in the palm of your hand. And like, and he said, well, he, he said, I do it this way, but if you want to do it differently, you, you can do it differently. And then he, gave me a quotation in Spanish. It was, uh, cada maestro tiene su librito. Every master has his own book. Mm-hmm. So if you have, if you have your way, go ahead and do it your way. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, that, that was, that was eye opening. One day where we'd harvested the, the, uh, we harvested the the flowers, and they were in the back of this uh, flatbed truck. and And a couple of the guys started decorating this truck with flowers all around the cab and just around the whole thing. And that really surprised me. Are these sort of Mexican workers who obviously have a, an aesthetic sense or or care about beauty? Um, and their flower, yeah, the way they arrange the, arrange the flowers are beautiful. Yeah. I think a, a lot of what comes out in your writing in that book and in a lot of short pieces about people around Sonoma County is this, uh, the strong sense of these people is like explorations of individual people, not just mm-hmm. what's happening. And, uh, I guess I'm just thinking about looking around your living room where we are and we're surrounded by the, the beats there's Ginsburg and Kerouac yeah. and Burroughs. Yeah, and yes, uh, so, uh, so uh, that sensibility seems in, you know, it seems like you have this, this sensibility of diving in of exploring mm-hmm. these characters as part of, uh, as part of the joy of, of that reporting. Right. Well, yes. I mean, the beat writers, uh, especially uh, Ginsburg and, and Kerouac did, Sort of value individual experience and, and, um, <clears throat> including themselves in, um, in their work, whether it was on the road or, or Howl and, and, uh, they're, they're using the first person pronoun I and like Ginsburg and, and Howl. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. So I think they helped to give me permission to include my own experience and tell it from my point of view. And, Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, uh, I started to read the beats when I was a teenager and I've been reading and rereading them and writing about them and teaching them. Um, uh, I think it probably like sinks in and has influenced me even in you know ways I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that that realization that there's an aesthetic sense even on a production in the midst of a production farm by people who are seen as doing the productive work that feels like a important insight into how things work in food and how things work here in Sonoma County. Yes, yeah, yeah. They definitely cared at Oak Hill about the appearance of, of the food i mean one of the things that happened was like we would eat food right in the in the field i mean we would like if somebody if we were harvesting carrots and somebody was hungry and you know, someone would just take a carrot and just wipe some of the dirt off and i mean there was still dirt on it and just eat mm-hmm. eat a carrot right there in the field and um i don't think i would have done that before this experience because i thought well it's dirt i don't know you have to wash it and yeah. <laughs> and peel it and 
uh, so, and then nothing bad ever happened. You know, there was nothing cleaner than this organic dirt there at Oak Hill, or or times in the summer when uh, Miguel would get out his knife and he would get a ripe melon and open the the melon up and you just have this burst of aroma and eat eat a melon standing there in the field. So, I did wonder a lot of times about the 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 carrots because the carrots had to look really beautiful in order to get taken out of the field and put into boxes. If they if they looked weird, they stayed in in the field. I mean, there's a lot of um, sometimes I thought you know wasted carrots there. I mean, they got turned over and they went back into the earth. I mean, there are there's other farms where people are not so doesn't have to look like absolutely beautiful. Yeah. How long ago was your was your year at that farm? Oh, this was like in two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. Um, I believe the book came out in two thousand and nine, and um, it did seem like the uh, the back to the land, the farming movement had, by the time the book came out, reached a kind of plateau. So the farming world seemed like it was it was kind of fixed in place and it wasn't clear like what was going to happen or whether it would change and it was there was a just uh, uh, a kind of static time and then soon after that it started to be in flux again because there were there were uh, young farmers who were coming from other parts of the country and some of them with with rich ex- background and experience who wanted to farm here and there was some the kind of the legend of of Sonoma County of partially because of uh Bob Kennard who's at Green String and mm-hmm. and also Paul Wirtz and um so there were other farms that started popping up, and when I was uh, exploring and writing, most of the of the farmers were growing vegetables and some and fruits, and a lot of the new people who came in it at the start of the second decade of the twenty first century were raising chickens and goats and uh, and pigs and cows and making cheese and uh, you, you could eggs and bacon and and so it it turned that way and i would think sort of more biodynamic farming uh, and um and then the creation of organizations well like the farmers guild and then reinventing the the grange which has been around for a long time but been a kind of moribund institution and reinvigorated and like in Sonoma, the Grange has been renovated, and uh, uh, new members and younger people, and so uh, it's, it's the farming. The farming scene right now is kind of very lively. There's just a, there's a lot that's going on. Um, I live right next door to a place that's been a farm. Uh, Wo farm working horse organic agriculture where they've grown vegetables and uh, they're going to be that that is closing down but there are uh, there's uh, some people who raise sheep and make uh, cheese who are going to be uh, next door and they just put in a, a huge fenced off a huge pasture for the sheep and they're just putting up this a barn for the sheep um, so I'm really excited to see this sort of next iteration of of uh of farming right next door to me i think there's this story that's sometimes told about um going back to the land like you managed like you mentioned in um jack london's time and then in the 70s and then and then now as i think sometimes the story goes that there's these waves of a of a of it being in style and then it goes out of style and sometimes i worry that that's what's happening but also i see these these strings of connectivity between those those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, I, yes, there's a certain amount of ebb and flow. I mean, my parents uh, got to Sonoma County in the seventies, and and they were farming organically, and mostly they didn't have cash crops, though. 
uh, they did. Ha- they had berries like boysenberries and raspberries that my father would sell at the. They would call them, you know, natural food stores in those days. And and there was a couple around. There was one in in Monte Rio, and there was one in Katati, and um, uh, and there were other there were other farms around, and and a, a lot of them didn't make it. I mean, I think. You have to have, in order to succeed organically farming, you have to have farmers markets. And it helps to have like restaurants and chefs who want to have like buy organic food and like even say on the menu that their, their produce comes from green string or from Paul's produce. And, uh, you have to have markets. And so it took a while to, to, for the markets to develop. Um, um so I think it's still it's still really hard it's still really challenging uh people people labor long hours and I think it's a lot it's it's really satisfying for a lot of people who do it a lot of people tell me or Paul told me Paul Wirtz once he told me that there was something magical about farming I mean there's a field and you plow it and it's been fertilized and, and you go through and you plant seeds and you don't know for sure if, um, what's going to happen. Then all of a sudden the, the seeds come up and then you've got, you've got tomato plants and a few months later you've got thousands of tomatoes and is th- this incredible, uh, productivity and, and fecundity of the, of this earth and, and it so, it does. It does seem like magic, and I've told that story to other people, and 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 they've said, yeah, the same thing. Uh, yep. You've been. You told me you've been working on a book about the drought here in California. Yeah. Yeah, and so I imagine you've been talking to a lot more farmers about that. Uh yes, I'm, yes, I've been talking to to uh, all kinds of farmers and ranchers and grape growers and winemakers. And uh, most people seem to feel like, yes, the water and drought, is it affects everybody in, in the world of agriculture or, or any in all walks of life in, in Sonoma County. So it is an, it's an ongoing story. We've been in, this is the fifth year of a drought. Uh, I think people are aware that even though it's rained, we're still in the drought and we don't know when we're going to get out of the drought because we've had, um, lowering of water tables because, because we've been pumping water out of the ground. We don't have a lot of the streams. Uh, there's no water in the streams or there's less in-stream flow. Um, uh, we've had loss of water in reservoirs and we've all become aware of the need to conserve water and the sort of growing sort of water literacy, this awareness that water is a finite resource. It's, there's not unlimited, uh, supplies of it. Um, so, um, I, in some ways, I think the book about the drought is like a continuation of field days. Uh, it probably has me in it again. Um, it has journeys around the landscape of Sonoma County and different places. And it also has uh, institutions that are part of the water, the hydrological picture, like the Sonoma County Water Agency and different water groups, the Sonoma County Water Coalition and the Water Institute. Uh, and uh, um, Out in Occidental, and there's a lot of people who who've been thinking and writing about water and about drought. And so it's also, it's the uh, putting together all these different, the voices that people have to say uh, um, about water and drought here. I, I don't want to say that Sonoma is a microcosm of California. I don't know whether it is. California is a big place. There's, there's a lot of different, regions and landscapes and probably uh, there's so many 
different stories depending on where you are. If you're near the Mexican border or up near Oregon or on the coast or east of the Sierras. So, uh, I know there's a, there's a an inclination on the part of authors and, and on their editors to say, well, why are you writing? You know, how is the story of this place like emblematic of some kind of larger story? And, uh, there, there are, links between or similarities between the drought here and drought other places, but it's also really unique. And I, I want to tell the sort of just the unique quality of the drought here as a, and the human experience of, of, of the drought, what it means, what does it actually mean to live through a drought? Um, there are not, as far as I can see, a whole lot of books about drought. There's a lot of books about water and, and about rain. Uh, drought, in some ways, drought, it's, is, uh, harder to write about or more challenging to write about because, I mean, you can see it when it rains and, or when it floods. Uh, sometimes looking for drought is like more subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a place really close to me where I was exploring and, and the ground is all cracked. You know, the way you're used to seeing in uh, places where India, for example, where there's severe drought. Um, and I went out with a photographer, of my, a friend of mine, and, and we took some pictures of me and this cracked earth. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a couple things that stick in my mind when I think about drought in California. And one is that, um, you know, there's we're at risk of much greater drought in the future. I and mean, we just had this big climate deal in Paris and there's mm-hmm. been a lot of thought put into what to do about it, both how to adapt and what to do about climate change itself. But there's also, I think a lot about um, John Steinbeck in East of Eden when mm-hmm. in that beginning, he's talking about the Salinas Valley, but he says the dry years last usually just long enough for you to forget about the West years. And then it starts to rain and then the wet years last long enough for you to forget about the dry years right. and is that just that, that indication of our long history of a drought and the and the weird ways that we forget about it yes right yeah yeah it does that that is curious the way i guess people don't want to remember droughts because uh on <laughs> Uh, why don't they want to remember droughts? I don't know, because there's sort of hardship and deprivation of people and they're just, it's just sort of worrisome, you know, whether people, and, and there's good reason why people are worrying. There are places where wells have run dry. I mean, for individuals and, and also for towns like East Porterville, uh, or people having to cut back really severely or, or, uh, I mean, right here, just, 10 minute drive away from me, uh, Green String Farm ran out of water in, in August. So it's, um, uh, and I, um, I spent a day with Bob Kennard in August and he didn't say anything about running out of water. And then I heard about it from some mutual friends. And then when I saw him a couple of months later on, he, um, I said, Bob, why didn't you tell me that you ran out of water? And he said, well, I didn't want to introduce any negativity in our conversation. <laughs> so I guess drought is negativity. Yeah. It's kind of like minus. It's a sort of absence of yeah. water or yeah. there's less water available than, than we'd like to have or that we need. When I first moved here, I started hearing rumors that, you know, so-and-so, they're trucking in water now and that kind of thing. But no one would talk about it on their own farm or on their own vineyard. It is almost like if, if not talking about it in public would make it so you didn't have to do anything about it. I think maybe that's changing now though. I did write something fairly recently for the Point Reyes light about drought and water situation there. And uh, there are people in places in West Marin who do have water trucked in. Like there's a lot of people in Marshall uh, but they're not, they're not really advertising the fact that they're trucking in water. Um, I did have to do a fair amount of digging to, you know, get people to say, well, <laughs> how much are you paying and where is the water coming from and how often 
does this happen? So, uh, and I, I, uh, it's, yeah, I haven't, there is not a lot that's written about people trucking in water either, right? There's a lot of different, like, pockets of the story that really don't get told. It seems like a lot of people are dealing with the drought now, but also a lot of reporting on the drought seems like it's, uh, it's almost like it's reporting on the future and it's reporting on what people are fear or what they hope for. Like, what are, what are people, yeah, where are people's fears and hopes for, for what will happen with water here? Well, the fears, I believe, are, uh, that water will run out, that water, where, where they live, water will run out, or that'll get to be really expensive. Or, but then I think that they also have fear of flood. I mean, we live in a place where there's been, like, severe flooding. and We go back and forth from drought to flood. Uh, so extremes of weather, I think, are, are what's in store for us. And, and I think one of the keys is to be resilient to be whatever comes along. The weather's going to be increasingly unpredictable, that we have to be able to um, survive and cope and and store water and have more groundwater and conserve more and save rainwater, uh, learning how to do with less. Um, um, and the hope, I, I think the hope is that some people, some people with imagination will be able to come up with some new ideas about how to, how to live, uh, uh, with a very scarce and finite resource. Great, John. Well, thanks so much. I just wanted to, um, if people want to read some of what you've written, where would you recommend that they start? Where, where would you recommend that they go? Oh, I guess I would say field days. I think that's a good place to begin, really. It's a int- good introduction to farming and agriculture and food and people who, the people who live here. And I think everybody I wrote about is, is still involved with growing food or making food and, and cooking and, and, and trying new things and different things. And, and, and they're keeping on going. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. Delicious Revolution.